tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Thunderbird is a property I've never paid much attention to, for no particular reason. I wasn't offended by its Native American theme, that's not really my style. That being said, I will say the theme was about as interesting to me as the cowboy motif at the El Rancho or The Last Frontier. Being a child of technology, marketing back to a day when they didn't have any isn't my idea of a vacation, it sounds like torture. One of the most fascinating things about Las Vegas is its unique ability to take things I normally wouldn't find interesting and make them appealing. The Thunderbird may be the perfect example of that phenomenon. As Southern California began cracking down on illegal gambling operations in the 1940s, Marion Hicks, a proprietor of such establishments, decided to relocate to Las Vegas. At a cost of $245,000, His construction company built and opened the 59-room El Cortez Hotel and Casino on Fremont Street in November of 1941. Originally, its location was considered to be too far from downtown to be successful. Initially, that appeared to be the case. Hicks only owned the place for about a year before selling it to Thomas Hall. Earlier in the same year the El Cortez was opened, Hall opened the El Rancho, the first resort on Highway 91, a stretch of road that would go on to become known as the Las Vegas Strip. In 1945, for unknown reasons, Hall sold the El Cortez to Bugsy Siegel, Meyer Lansky, Gus Greenbaum, and Mo Sedway for $600,000. However, just six months after their acquisition, already frustrated with the city's refusal to give them water and electrical services so they could expand the El Cortez, when the opportunity to invest in a project already under construction on Highway 91 they sold the El Cortez to John Housel Sr. for a $160,000 profit. The name of that project? The Flamingo. Housel's was already a known entity in Las Vegas. In the late 1920s, John would move his family to Vegas and purchase a one-third stake in a legal poker room called the Smokehouse on Fremont Street. In 1930, it was renamed the Las Vegas Club. When the state of Nevada re-legalized gambling in 1931, Households was one of the first people to be awarded a gaming license. Originally located in the space most recently known as La Bayou, in 1941, Households moved the Las Vegas Club across the street to 18 Fremont, at the time, the site of the Overland Hotel, where it remained until the day it closed in 2015. Over the years, Households would own stakes in various properties, including the Boulder Club, the Tropicana, and was an early partner in the Thunderbird. In 1946, after a failed attempt to buy a hotel casino in Reno, Marion Hicks partnered with Nevada Lieutenant Governor Cliff Jones to buy an 1,100-foot parcel of land on the east side of Highway 91, halfway between the El Rancho and the Last Frontier, from Guy McAfee for $2 million. 
Clifford Jones is another person who, over the years, had interest in several Las Vegas properties, including the El Cortez, the Dunes, and the Golden Nugget. Marianne's construction company would once again build the property, making his company the first to have built two resorts in Las Vegas. After the opening of the Flamingo, it was clear the game had changed. However, some felt it was too expensive and somewhat alienating. In an attempt to progress with the Strip's resort evolution while simultaneously offering a welcoming atmosphere, they decided to create what they called luxurious informality. And to avoid anyone missing the message, they displayed the words, Come as you are, on a beamed canopy at the entrance. It would be named the Thunderbird, meaning happiness unlimited in the Navajo Indian language. While not a clear return to the Western motif already represented at the El Rancho and Last Frontier, the theme was simply the other side of the Cowboys and Indians coin. The walls were concrete blocks with weeping mortar, and the resort's public spaces featured three fireplaces, attempting to create a comfortable space all would find welcoming. The Southwestern style, featuring portraits of Native Americans, was represented throughout the property in spaces like the wigwam, wampum, turquoise, and Navajo rooms, as well as the dining room, also known as the powwow showroom. The cocktail lounge had murals of cowboys and cactus, and the use of native stone connected the space to the desert region in the area. Designed by Graham Neon Sign Company, the property had two prominent marquees, both featuring large, colorful neon thunderbirds. While not identical, both were similarly colored and facing west. The first was curbside, prominently displaying the name of the property in cursive, as well as promoting whoever the headline attraction at the time was. The other was located not far from the curbside variation, above the pork ashore, perched on top of an observation tower, talons sunk into the roof. This was the introduction of the covered pork ashore to Las Vegas hotel casinos, a design element that would become a staple for properties to come. While heavily themed in its public spaces, it ended there as the rooms featured contemporary furnishings for the time. On September 2nd, 1948, the fourth casino resort opened on the Strip. Even though he only owned it for a short period of time, many of the people who worked for Marianne at the El Cortez came to work for him at the Thunderbird. A Vegas tradition at the time, when a new property would open, fellow casino owners would join the grand opening celebration and gamble along with the rest of the patrons, happy to lose money to grow the market. A reoccurring theme for new Vegas properties throughout history is the impact opening weekend could have in determining the success or failure of a resort, specifically how things went in the casino. The Flamingo experienced the grand opening so disastrous at the hands of hot gamblers that, among other reasons, it closed less than a month after it opened. Not to be outdone, the Thunderbirds opening was so bad, losing $140,000 at the craps table, it seemed the only way they could cover their losses at the tables was to sell the property to the people they owed. Fortunately for them, while negotiations did take place the following day, eventually a deal was made so Hicks and Jones could keep the resort. Despite opening night, the Thunderbird lived up to everything owners hoped it would be. It was so successful that six months after it opened, in February of 1949, it was announced that the Thunderbird would add an additional 78 rooms to the existing structure at an estimated cost of $750,000. By March, the project had expanded five times, eventually settling on an additional 206 rooms. 
1951. The iconic image of a woman in a bikini sitting on top of the signage for the Las Vegas Club was released. Clearly not actually sitting on top of the tallest neon sign west of the Mississippi River at the time, it was learned that the picture of the woman was taken poolside at the Thunderbird. A Yesco artist airbrushed the sketch of the sign looking down to Fremont Street, and a photographer superimposed the picture over it. In 1952 and 53, demand was so high for rooms at the Thunderbird, the property had to find a way to address the overflow of guests. So in 1953, they opened the Algiers, a 110-room extension next door to the property. While not technically a part of the Thunderbird, guests staying at the Algiers were treated as if they were with all the same privileges. In addition to the rooms, the Algier had its own heated pool, dining room, and cocktail lounge. As competition increased for tourist attention on the Strip, everything got bigger in Las Vegas. In 1955, with the opening of three new properties on the Strip, Riviera, the Dunes, and the Royal Nevada, the last frontier decided the Western theme was outdated. So they renovated and rebranded themselves the New Frontier. When they added a new 125-foot-tall pylon sign, not to be outdone, the Thunderbird lifted the roadside bird higher into the air. While they were at it, they created a new pork ashore and expanded the casino closer to the road. Adding to the amenities on site, the Thunderbird became the home of radio station KORK, an NBC network affiliate. However, in 1955, the Thunderbird was closed for a short period of time by the tax commission after articles in the Las Vegas Sun alleged that Meyer Lansky and other members of organized crime held interest in the property. They revoked the gaming licenses of owners Marion Hicks and Clifford Jones, and hearings began to look for new owners. However, the commission's ruling was overturned on appeal when the Supreme Court ruled there wasn't enough evidence to support revocation. Back to business as usual. In 1957, the Thunderbird announced another planned remodel. Initially only expected to take six weeks, it would take over a year to complete. In December of 1958, the renovations to what they were now referring to as the new Thunderbird were complete. It was truly a remodel in every sense of the word. While nothing was introduced, virtually everything was improved and or redesigned. In 1960, Joining the trend of offering topless shows started by the Dunes, the Thunderbird's spin on the concept was to put it on ice. It was called Thunderbird's Ecstasy on Ice. The show became so popular, in July of the same year, the dinner show was made more family-friendly with clothed chorus girls. Only the late show would be topless. In May of 1961, Marion Hicks was losing his battle with cancer. As a result, he was looking to sell his interest in the Thunderbird. An application to transfer ownership to Sid Wyman and Charlie Rich, previous owners of the Riviera, was submitted. But the deal fell apart in September, and the parties couldn't agree on a price. A week later, Marion died, and his family took over operations of the property. Partner Clifford Jones inquired about taking over his interest in the hotel. However, since he owned casino interests in Aruba, he was unable to obtain a license in Nevada due to foreign gambling interests, a regulatory requirement one couldn't have at the time. On September 22, 1964, Del Webb's Sahara Nevada Corporation announced the acquisition of the Thunderbird at a cost of $11 million. The, pre 
Overtures expanded, Del Webb's Casino Holdings. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Yeah.